0: I remember 1980. I remember it because I turned 12 years old that fall, and I'd already been in love and had my hopes dashed because of stupid Brian Namine And I'd seen a penthouse magazine by then, and I'd made my own fireworks, and I was old enough to think, maybe having a siren on my Schwinn Stingray wasn't as cool as it used to be. I thought the Stingray was still cool, mind you, even though everyone else was getting into BMX, because at that point... I was losing my grip on what was cool, and I never learned to skateboard properly, and I wasn't very good at missile command, and I wouldn't kiss a girl for another four years. But 12 years old IS old enough to remember pretty much everything, and unless you're some ding-dong with feathered hair and a goodie comb who's into BMX, you're old enough to know what adults are talking about on television. And even though by 1980 we'd, as a culture, had 15 years of solid heyday of boomer youth, Beaver Cleaver and Annette Funicello and seven generations of great rock and roll crammed into four years, but Vietnam and Watergate and Emerson Lake and Palmer and Bay City Rollers and punk and disco and the beginnings of New Wave and all that other stuff that boomers have dined out on for the last 50 years, the fact is that their parents still wouldn't give them the keys to the culture. The greatest generation was rounding the corner into their 50s and 60s but had not yet relinquished their grip on the world. I don't just mean their grip on political power or their seats on the boards of directors. I mean their tastes still mostly determined what was on television, what was in the grocery stores, what it meant to be a grown-up, how big an Oldsmobile was, all the important shit. And even as the boomers moved into their 30s and were already trying to force nostalgia about their own childhoods down our throats, their folks were still watching the Jerry Lewis telethon and not letting them hold the clicker. But the cracks had started to show. Now how did this movie, The Sea Wolves, get made in 1980? Where a 53-year-old Roger Moore was the sexy young guy? Well, there was demand for this kind of, let us fight World War II one more time, please. Let us sail back to when things weren't so complicated and our kids hadn't turned out to suck so bad and the bad guys were blonde and war was a caper. There was demand for that kind of content There was demand for sassy 64-year-old Gregory Peck and 70-year-old David Niven. They were exactly the kind of adventure star you wanted to see, I guess, if you were 59 and still thought you would live forever and hoped that you would have sex again. Well, the following year, Indiana Jones became our preferred Nazi shooter, and Tempest was released, and I was good at Tempest. The torch was passed. The fumes alone are getting me tiddly, On today's Friendly Fire, the Sea Wolves.
1: Welcome to Friendly Fire, the war movie podcast that every week attempts to produce petrol from cow manure. I'm Ben Harrison.
2: <laughs> this is your Gregory Peck? <laughs> I was I was promised a good Gregory Peck impression. Ben. That was a
1: bad one. We'll get one by the end. Kind of hard when he's he's doing like a British accent a little bit, but not that much. Uh, I'm Adam Pranica.
0: <laughs> and I'm your friend John Roderick.
2: The, the quality about Gregory Peck that I love in this film, maybe more than any other, is the differently colored hair and mustache combination he's rocking.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> he, does. he is rocking a differently colored hair and mustache.
2: I love it. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's wild to think about like a bunch of like semi-retired dudes being your commando squad. This is a real thing that happened. He's like
0: 64 years old, Gregory Peck, in this movie, but... The crazy thing is that David Niven was 70, 70 (laughs) years old and doing stunts and being a super spy, shooting dudes, really (laughs) something.
2: I feel bad as a fan of movies. It took Friendly Fire for me to really love the David Niven and to get to know him. Big fan now.
1: He's pretty great. Do you think of the Calcutta Light Horse? This movie really, for a lot of reasons, feels like it kind of just wishes it was a a Bond film, but it's a real story, so they couldn't have it be set in the Bond universe, because those have to be fictional.
0: The the title sequence is really like cut-rate,
2: dollar-general Bond. (laughs) Uh, Roger Moore was never my favorite Bond, and I don't think he's anyone's favorite Bond, but it made me it made me like him as bond more after this film because i really
1: loved his character in this it's such a classic bond move to have a bullet wound in your elbow and to do nothing but cover it with a different (laughs) dinner jacket
0: yeah right although having had a bullet wound in my elbow and had to change my dinner jacket it also ruins the cuff of your shirt Mm. yeah and he was doing kind of a bad job of concealing the fact that is like his cuff links were all Dripping blood. Right.
2: Did he have the best job of the assembled people on this mission? Because we keep cutting back to him towards the end, and he's just, like, on the beach, bleeding out of his jacket sleeve, watching <laughs> the ships blow up. That's not a bad spot, right? He
1: kind of rides out the end of this movie, like, having done his, accomplished his mission at, like, the three-quarter mark. Yeah. And, and he doesn't really have to do anything else. <laughs> Except
0: that he was the... I mean, the whole romance angle of this movie is just completely glued onto the top of it. Like a love toupee. <laughs> the other leading characters are basically like 65 to 70. And Roger Moore at the ripe young age of 53 is given the the sex uh, side story. Mm-hmm. But he's a dupe through the whole thing. Like she's a German spy, but he never realizes it. He's just yeah. chasing tail. And he honestly does not realize it until he shows up at her house to pick her up for the date and there are assassins there. But like that makes him sort of the dumbest character in the movie and like constantly jeopardizing the plan.
1: One thing I kind of like about the movie is that they're not very good at being spies. Like, they they go and they get, like, one shaky lead, and they come back, and they're like, we've got a lead! And, and their boss is like, yeah, guys, this is not much. Like, you fucked a lot of things up, and your one contact in Goa was stabbed right after you left, so this is uh this is actually bad. <laughs> I love how they keep killing people who could give them information <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if you guys read anything about operation creek aka Operation Longshanks, the real thing that this is about, but uh the the German spy Trompetta, who is depicted in this film and his wife were abducted, and it is heavily implied tortured and killed by the Gregory Peck and Roger Moore characters oh. uh, for the for the information about the Aaron Like the <laughs> the movie makes makes them seem like much worse as spies and also much more like ethical.
2: There's never a sense of lethality with Peck and Moore's characters. It's it feels very much like colonizers on vacation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. the, like, the whole vibe of the thing is so Laid back and not intense, even the even the part where Roger Moore's al- almost killed picking up his date for the party. I never really felt like he was in danger.
0: No, there are quite a few people that get stabbed to death in this movie, which is a pretty violent way to go. But it's right. It's those kind of stabbings where someone sticks a pen knife right into your belly button and you instantly die
2: <laughs> it's like yeah. an agatha christie type death where it's a, it's right, a exactly. mystery death versus like a, a traumatic violent death
0: yeah, this is world war Two, but it's definitely that era of like oh there's an off button on this person right where their watch pocket is
2: uh, and here's how oh, i hit it dead
0: <laughs> agatha christie that's good
1: when Trompetta dies, it's definitely like a bullet wound to maybe the thigh that kills him. <laughs> yeah. You know, that's the way that we used
0: to die when we were playing cops and robbers in the woods. You know, you get shot and go, oh, oh, I mean, her knife, her assassin's knife was what? A three inch long blade. The whole knife couldn't have been six inches long, but somehow she's like, I don't know. She's getting the artery every time. That scene
2: where she stabs Jack. Uh, made me ask a, a troubling continuity question, which is when Roger Moore comes back and discovers Jack's body, he dresses for the party with that body in the room because he's in that tux uh, when he helps the hotel guy move the body out of the room later.
0: Right. And, the, and this is the crazy thing, because if it was a James Bond movie, he'd be dressing for the party knowing that he was going on a date with the killer. Yeah, and and doing the whole he's dressing he's like talking to his dead friend like I'm gonna go I'm about to go deal with this situation you didn't die in vain <laughs> but in this movie his dead friend is on the floor he has no idea who killed him and he's still getting dressed for a party which he just thinks is a hot date yeah the party has no there's no spy angle to it
1: him being at the party does not advance the cause of blowing <laughs> up the air fell <Ehrenfeld> at all <laughs> It's Pew, I think, that
2: that passes the envelope to the guy and he's like, throw a big party and a carnival and include fireworks. (laughs) It is the most extravagant (laughs) night of partying I've maybe ever seen on film. It's like carnival that this guy has put together with a half an inch of bills in that little envelope.
1: Well, crucially, the real event took place on the last night of carnival.
2: No way.
1: Yeah. Wow. (laughs) So you hit on it. It looked like a ton of fun. Yeah. I mean, the idea of like walking down to the red light district and saying like, hey, uh, next three days are on me for anyone that has a plausible connection to a boat. Could I buy your entire
2: stable of sex workers just by weight? (laughs) (laughs) It might actually be easier on the conversion if we could do it like that. We'll call it tons of fun. You've done it before, haven't you? Is the Barbara Kellerman character the only lady character depicted in the entire film? No, there were there were a couple
0: of uh, there were a couple of sex workers up on the balcony that waved. Okay,
1: there's a kind of a bunch of old guys past their prime getting back together for one big adventure movie that is almost categorically defined in opposition to the uh to the what's the rule the
0: the bechdel test yeah
1: to the bechdel (laughs) test (laughs) this is one of those movies
0: thank goodness that this isn't one of those movies where a bunch of old guys get back uh back together for one last jaunt and it's full of younger women Mm. Uh, (laughs) probably still wouldn't pass the bechdel test but
1: no, yeah, I mean, she's not an age-appropriate love interest for Roger Moore, but the real woman that she's based on was actually the wife of Trumpetta, the, the German spy, uh, and I think that both of them were dragged off to somewhere in the British-controlled part of India and tortured and killed, so uh, slightly better that she gets to, like, you know, make bedroom eyes at Roger Moore.
0: Ben, are you saying that you're not in favor of punching Nazis? because i'm going to this is a, th- i'm going to send a tweet storm about this you're like you think that nazis should be
1: treated really fairly
2: you're the you're the one host of friendly fire that believes that
1: come on i'm super pro nazi punching but i also think that this movie like puts puts a uh, virtue signaling simp like myself in a, a tough spot because the the other spy that they kill is a indian independence activist
0: mm. Also, Ben, you have been strangely silent about the colonialism apologia that this film is. I've been, (laughs) the whole time I was watching this, I was just like, oh, this is just great. Um, Ben's gonna get 15 minutes into this show and he's not gonna say anything about colonialism and I'm gonna fucking spike that volleyball. (laughs) Oh.
1: (laughs) I was very distracted by, uh, <laughs> by my man, Gregory Peck. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, it's hard for me to believe that he would do anything bad. So if being a, a British special operative in colonial India is bad, then I don't know what's right anymore, I guess.
2: We've occasionally gotten the lady character in a war film, you know, that has like the two hearts in her eyes looking at the Duke. <laughs> for example but like in this case i really feel like there are a lot of film noir parallels and i and like that that she is a femme fatale and that she so ably she comes really close to killing Roger Moore and i really enjoyed barbara kellerman's work in this movie it made me like this is one of those films where i was like oh, i've never heard of her she must have had a great and long career that i'm just unaware of and she sort of got out of the game not long after this film she continued to act but i imagined this film to be a a, a mini trampoline into stardom for her cuz i thought she was just fantastic in this movie uh, but it didn't turn out that way for her she's jewish her dad
0: escaped from nazi germany yeah and uh, her mother was in the french resistance during the second world war wow and that's why she has this f- she's absolutely fluent in german and speaks beautiful german mm-hmm.
2: I think you need to be a type of person that does not require acting to go toe-to-toe with a guy like Roger Moore. (laughs) The greatest actor of our time. (laughs) Credibly. No, I mean, in 1980.
0: Oh, right, sure. The, The greatest actor of our time in 1980.
2: He was considered something very different in 80, and I think she capably does that.
1: Yeah, I don't think that Roger Moore, like, comes across as a great actor, but he is, like, a force of personality.
0: Let me just step in here briefly and explain to you to exactly what Roger Moore was in 1980. Because <laughs> Roger Moore was always like a total stuffed shirt. And he's a clown in this movie. Come on, you
1: guys. It's kind of a like a Bond parody in a way, like Yeah. It's contemporaneous with his Bond movies. He'd made Mo- Moonraker the year before this. An octopusy. A couple years later. Yep. Oh, and, and for your eyes only. The next year.
0: This is right in the center, right? He he took over Bond in '73 and kept doing it well after he should have stopped in
1: '85.
3: Be a good girl, would you, and uh, put
0: her on automatic.
1: Did his manager and agent? go like hey like maybe roger shouldn't do this sea Wolves movie because it's about him being terrible at being a spy and like we're kind of cultivating this thing about him being great at being a spy with the huge film franchise that he is the current face of but i think it's i
0: think you see the evidence in it that this was roger moore's attempt to transcend bond like he's yeah, this, this is his like, I don't want to be typecast.
1: I don't want to be typecast. I just I want to run around in a in a tuxedo in an exotic locale and bed a beautiful woman in a spy like context. Have you
2: thought about being James Bond, but bad at it? Well, that's what I mean. Like
0: somebody on paper. This looked amazing. He gets to work with David Niven and Gregory Peck. He's playing a World War One like espionage. It's going to be like, it's this is his this is his breakout role. And then he gets on set, and I think two things happened. One, <laughs> the filmmakers were like, all we're going to do is make a cut-rate Bond film here cause, because in a way, all these other actors are... You know, they were legendary actors, but but they had not achieved the status... Because they were still alive, they didn't have the status that they have now, which is like, these were some of the greatest actors of the 20th century. You know, they were... These these guys were on like Dean Martin's celebrity roast at this point in their career. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Is Ocean's Eleven a an apt comparison in terms of of it being a a wide net for a certain type of actor to come and join an ensemble? That's what's so
0: confusing about it because the movie has these these great actors of the old school, but everything about it is firmly situated in 1980.
2: Outside of Roger Moore, does this feel like 1980 to you as a film? Absolutely.
0: Absolutely. In every way, it's it it reeks of of the of the nadir that 1980 was. <laughs> this this movie just sits, it just sits in the like cold gruel of the you know, the great 70s film thing that happened in the early to mid 70s but it hasn't yet turned into the 80s reinvention of film you know that happened kind of with i don't know what you know the whole like post big chill kind of 80s ensemble thing
2: almost this entire cast did a movie a couple years prior called the wild geese directed by the same director this was a reuniting of the cast and director uh, of that film for the sea wolves. I added it to our list. I'm just going to put that out there. I feel like part of the problem with this movie is that Roger Moore
0: was absolutely acting at the top of his range. And the entire movie then is held up by this tent of like Roger Moore's dramatic ability. And you know, you get what you pay for.
2: I, I hear you bagging on Roger Moore I'm bagging. But I got to tell you, I fell for him the way Mrs. Cromwell did. I I dug his whole deal. And part of it might just be like old's on vacation in India. Like I just sort of really settled into that vibe of like part-time spycraft they (laughs) had going on. Like, look, let's have a lot of cocktails out on the patio. And if there's time, like let's chase (laughs) down this trompeta guy. If we happen to incidentally run into him. Uh, while dining al fresco. If the professionals can't do it, we might have to turn to amateurs.
1: That guy Gupta that they kill, the independence activist. They kill him and he's wearing like a head to toe I don't quite know how to describe the the shirt he's wearing. I guess it's like an adventure shirt or something. It's got it's it's you know, those big breast pockets and then big It's
2: the J Peterman adventure shirt. It totally
1: is. And then Trumpetta comes out in the next scene wearing like the exact same outfit.
2: We've seen a lot of Nazis, unfriendly fire, but is the actor who plays Trumpetta the most Nazi-looking guy we've ever seen? Wolf Koller.
1: Wow. He is up there. He's
2: one of the three guys whose face gets melted at the at the unveiling of the arc. Oh shit! You're right. Yeah, that's Wolf Koller. That guy is hanging two lanterns off of that jaw. It is. That's an incredible jawline.
1: That jaw belongs in a museum. <laughs> he's also
0: in a couple of other things that we're going to watch in this. He's in Wonder Woman, but he oh. also is, uh, he's in Firefox, which is going to be one of our pork chop yeah. movies. Good one. And he's in Bo- Band of Brothers. He's, he's,
2: um, he's like some kind of Wehrmacht dude in Band of Brothers. He's in Cockneys versus Zombies, not a porn film. <laughs> oh shit,
0: you guys! He's a, he's like an extra at Force 10 from Navarone.
2: Whoa! Damn! Great God resume. Thank With a jawline like that, it really opens some doors.
1: Adam, did you notice William Morgan Shepard uh, toward the end of this movie? He's one of the Calcutta Light Horse guys. No. He's, uh, he's also in Star Trek Six: The Undiscovered Country as the jailer that tells them that there's, <laughs> no, there's stockade. no electronic frontier, wow. no stockade. Good connection. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that guy's great. <laughs> he's one of the best. He's the, he's the guy that takes his false eye out because it, he might as well uh, go eye patch for the raid. This ensemble is so big, and yet it
2: still manages to give us a little thing. About every one of the people and and false guy is one of the is one of the characters that gets a moment
1: like that. Yeah. And that's such a great move in a war movie like this, where like part of the premise is that these are a bunch of kind of doughy, like past their prime. Older gents that are living a life of leisure and like can't do a push up to save their lives. And so they all kind of look the same. Like Mm -hmm. they all look like guys that hang out with your dad. (laughs) And so just a little moment like that is like so great to just like, okay, I'm going to remember this guy going forward because he's the one with the eye patch and a fake eye in a pocket.
2: Did you get the sense that once the training montage of olds was over and we got like I got such chills at the very clear Reservoir dog shot of the olds like emerging and ready to rock and like doing the walk toward the camera. Did that yeah. originate here? Uh, I don't know.
1: This this can't be the first time that's it happened. Felt
2: very familiar and fun.
0: What's amazing about the Calcutta Light Horse is you when you think about a group of olds getting back together <laughs> for uh, to fight like a World War II battle, you think. Oh, these are vet- these are World War One veterans yeah. that are like coming out of retirement, but these guys are like veterans of the Boer War. Uh-huh.
2: They're, they <laughs> right. they were like they go way back. Their,
0: yeah, they were at their prime in like nineteen hundred.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you remember when we started getting
1: the telephone? <laughs> they they hung out all through World War One. Like they they've been in reserve since the Boer War. Yeah, and that made me think a lot about like how. Like World War II was a global conflict that was fought on an unthinkable number of fronts, including this small, weird one where it was like a clandestine operation in a colonial holding of a neutral power. And yet a huge percentage of humanity went through the whole war just doing the same shit they were doing before the war started.
0: Right. Just sitting around drinking gin.
1: These guys very well could have just kept going to the club and like playing cards and making... Ribald jokes with each other for the entire war
0: so much in this movie that kind of is taken for granted. Like India is a British colonial possession at this point in time. The government is English. The queen is the monarch and the Japanese are the actual bad guys in this theater. The German U boats are sinking American and, and British shipping that's headed to the Pacific theater to fight the Japanese but we never hear about the Japanese or or think about them at all.
2: Mm-hmm. Right. There's such a strange tension of these three ships in port and they're all filled with German soldiers just kind of smoking cigarettes on deck, watching the goings on around the harbor.
1: It, it's bizarre. There's a romanticism to that imagery.
2: Yeah.
0: Well, yeah, because they can't leave. Right. And they're just going to sit on their boat for four years and just
1: go, you know, like yeah. rotate, leave and go down and go to the same whorehouses. I'm like, well. well, I read that, like a <laughs> lot of them actually jumped ship and like went into Goa and got jobs because they like ran out of supplies on the ships and they, they, the ships had no way of like replenishing those supplies. We are businessmen on holiday. I wondered a little bit about like how romanticized the depictions of like of life for colonial Europeans in this context was there are very few like local characters who get to do anything in this movie.
0: Oh, I think that's that's that was downplaying it. There's a scene in this movie where uh, one of the light horse is. I don't know doing jumping jacks or something and a waiter comes out holding his breakfast on a tray and he (laughs) like he conks the guy and the his breakfast falls all over and he turns just turns on him it's like you stupid like announce when you've arrived or something like that and the guy's like oh sorry i think we would have seen that from
1: all of those guys if the if the movie was another hour long there's a scene where the group that rides the train down is in the train station in Calcutta. And one of them just like pushes an Indian guy out of the way in a way that is like so much more aggressive and disdainful than is necessary to like move through a crowd.
0: Well, think of the way the movie opens. David Niven is driving that car through like crowded streets with the attitude of like, I'm, n- I'm never touching the brakes. So all of you people and your cows and your livelihoods like better hop.
1: That was actually like pretty realistic to me because, because and this, and this is like based on like a single point of data, but when I was traveling in India, the guy that uh, we hired to drive us around for a week drove exactly like that. And we were just like white knuckling it in this car. Like it's totally unbelievable.
0: Meanwhile, in Seattle, they put traffic circles in neighborhoods, but then they realized that people couldn't figure out how to use them, so also put stop signs.
2: Guys, I imagine one of the aspects of this film that the both of you would really enjoy uh, were some of the costuming, but also the luggage. It feels like it's been a minute since we've talked about uh, a great luggage movie on Friendly Fire. And uh, boy, the Roger Moore leather luggage This film is really some of the best stuff.
0: Well, here is the problem that you have stepped right into, Adam. You've stepped into my tiger trap. Great. My (laughs) well-laid, punji stick tiger trap. This is
2: what it's like to go thrifting with you and I hold up a shirt (laughs) and you basically like grab me by the back of my neck and throw me out of the goodwill. (laughs) Is this a good one, John? (laughs) Here's the problem. All
0: of the outfits in this movie... Our permanent press.
1: One thing that really bumped me out of the movie was when Gregory Peck dumped his bottle of whiskey on himself, and it all like beaded and it, rolled it, off. It the totally jacket. rolled off.
0: It totally rolled off. The jacket <laughs> absorbed nothing because it because it was covered with Scotchgard.
2: I'm so glad I brought this up. I did
1: not get that detail. I wanted to talk about the the U-boats because the whole plot is that there's like these these U-boats patrolling. Uh, the waters of India and sinking ships left and right. And for the sake of establishing the U-boat at the beginning of the movie, get a little, uh, you know, just a little slice of life on a U-boat taking out a uh, an allied ship. But then <laughs> the U-boat threatens the Phoebe later. And they don't even realize because they've uh, they've like cried wolf with a with a shark fin. That was a great moment. Earlier. I thought mm-hmm. I love the idea that the Phoebe was nearly sunk and it, and not sunk because the Germans thought it was a threat or that it was anything. They were just like, well, we could just like surface and take it out.
2: I really admired how much attention to detail this film gave three scenes and those were the three u-boat scenes the one in the beginning where it's like almost perfunctory like okay the uh this boat's here on the schedule where we've been told let's take it out like thus establishing the problem and then we get the phoebe scene total james bond way of doing it too, like go to cut to the title sequence right Perfect. Perfectly done. And then we get the Phoebe scene and then we get the scene at the end, which is so anticlimactic in a climactic way, right? The U-boat's yeah. like, huh? Well, we didn't get a transmission this time. All right. Well, I guess we'll just keep
1: patrolling. <laughs> well, Adam, now you've fallen into my tiger trap. Wow. Ben, before we go any further, did did Adam say
0: anticlimactic?
1: Well, remarkable that you would uh, raise a pedantic quibble, John, (laughs) because my my Tiger Trap was all about a U-boat pedant. Mm, Oh, yeah. uh, Who noticed U-boat sequence at the beginning. One of the officers is clean-shaven. Submarine personnel on patrol did not shave until they reached their home port. And except on the outward passage, they would have had a beard.
2: Uh, I'm just going to jump right in here and say... uh, If your sub is crewed by a crew full of atoms,
1: (laughs) maybe that's not to be (laughs) a problem.
2: I got to ask, is this a submarine movie? It does not increase the tension using the submarine in a way that it could if it were to be a submarine film. Like Establishing the problem of this intelligence getting there is is fine, but if we were given the repetition of more and more uh, freighters being sunk, I think that would really seal the deal, but as it is, I don't think so.
1: I think it's really more of a radio intrigue movie. That's such a specifically World War II kind of puzzle to solve. After World War II, it like stops being such a big problem, right? Because there's enough telephony and and then the DARPA net to overcome that as like, the primary mode of communication over long distances.
0: Well, no, because in Vietnam the trope is you're on a you're on a handset and you're trying to get your fire coordinates, and you're like, you know, come in, come in.
1: You're fragging our guys. You got the coordinates set yeah. wrong. And Black Hawk Down, they're like using the local cellular network too, which is wild. And Lone Survivor, in that same way, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I
0: couldn't get couldn't get radio. Yeah, It's a major part of all war we're discovering.
1: I take back my prior thing of it's a specific <laughs> World War II thing. <laughs> <laughs> See you in coaching. I wonder how you go back after you've like gone to Goa twice and like totally screwed up all of the espionage, killed most of the people that would provide leads to like figure it out. <laughs> like how to get like how to get on the boat what secret bulkhead compartment the the radio is in and then you're like there with your boss and you're like listen <laughs> left and right we have screwed up we have spent money that the crown has has allocated for this project totally frivolously we've like bought drinks for girls we've uh, we've arranged hookers we've <laughs> we've spent a lot of money gambling it is a scandal but hear me out what if we get all of these retired old guys to be the commando force that actually carries out the mission guys even less well qualified than we are
0: this is the place where the movie finally falls to one knee and teeters and collapses like a confederate statue <laughs> <laughs> wow timely reference the whole <laughs> plot hinges on the idea that the that the calcutta light horse is going to appear to be a bunch of drunken english tourists who on a lark steal a boat and storm the storm the ship problem number one they stole the boat two weeks prior in calcutta
2: Like they should have just taken the train to Marmagoa and stolen a boat there or something. Yeah, they should have all gotten on the train, spent the entire train
0: drinking very publicly and shoving people and pouring whiskey on each other. They should have gotten to Goa, gone to the whorehouses and made a public scene. And what a fun movie this would have been, right? It's already two hours long. Take the whole Roger Moore romance with the German spy plotline out and replace it. Now with Now I'll instruct you to rub the sex worker all over you, but do yeah. not indulge in the sex worker. That's exactly right. Get the smell of the sex worker on you, but don't indulge, but make sure everybody sees all of these 70 year olds going fucking hog wild and then go down to the harbor, pour whiskey on your, on your polyester jackets Go down to the harbor, actually steal a boat that's there, and go out and defeat these sailors with some karate chops. Like the whole business, of, <laughs> whole business of like, oh yeah, it's just a bunch of drunks, but they have they have like undersea
2: explosives and burp guns. You got to replace the tension though that you're taking away, John. Like if we're breaking this movie in a writer's room, like part of the fun of this film is the is the passage on the Phoebe. And all the all the problems they run into.
0: But you could put all of that into some dumb boat that you stole in the harbor in Goa. You know, you could condense all of that. The motor stopped, into the distance of the mile it would take to drive out to the. But also think of all the tension you would get in like, we there's this boat down there and we're going to steal it. But there's this captain Queeg or whatever that we have to throw overboard, and then. We can't get
2: the motor started and also, like... It is more exciting to steal a boat than buy a boat in in this film. I get that.
1: So, this rewrite is very interesting to me because, like, this is based on a real event. And, like, the boats in the, the Ehrenfeld and the other German boats and an Italian boat, I think, all sank because the crews realized they'd been compromised and scuttled their ships to avoid having the British seize them. Right. And there's many, many, many parts of this story that are taken from the actual events, but also many, many key details that were changed for dramatic or romantic effect. And I wonder like, do we like have a strong feeling about that on Friendly Fire? I, I sort of wonder if it does a disservice to like like reimagine history just to like make it a little bit more like a Bond film. In a in a situation like this, I mean, like we're talking about a movie that was made six years after the British government declassified the documents about this having even happened. Like it was denied until 1974. Wow. Different wars seem to have different rules. The Sea Wolves didn't enter like the cultural zeitgeist. It's it's a movie that I kind of wish had in a way because it's it seems like. It's a really pretty film and 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 like kind of a j it is a fun action film, and I kind of wish like we didn't have to watch this in a super crappy SD format. But also if it had entered the Zeitgeist, like millions of people would be walking around with a total misunderstanding of what happened in the real Operation Creek.
0: Right. But that's true of Guns of Navarone, right? Guns of Navarone right. is based sort of on a thing, but Nothing about Guns of Navarone is real, and yet it all feels pretty real. I mean, I had a Navarone playset. You could have knocked me over with a feather when I when I first learned that Navarone was fake.
1: <laughs> what did they base the shape of the playset yeah. on? If what are you talking about? If there's, there's no Navarone. <laughs> you're
2: telling me there wasn't a castle gray skull with yellow cannon sticking out of it. <laughs> <laughs> it's absurd. <laughs> so I don't know. I've come down on both sides.
0: Right. I mean, I really, I really ripped into inglorious bastards because i felt like the you know the liberties were of a kind that really stuck in my craw but i'll watch a movie where david niven you know like flies a v like rides a v1 rocket over the english channel uh i'll watch those all day how do you feel about it adam like where do you fall on the how much liberty i kind of i kind of know the answer but
2: i think you do I was very accepting of the type of film that empties an entire clip into Hitler's face. The the type of film that *Inglorious Bastards is. But we get a pretty neat A to C here in this film. Like, the idea that there was intelligence that needed to be disrupted, and it got disrupted. Uh, I mean, in 1980, who else are you going to have do this? But, but Peck and Moore and... A lady who didn't have a career (laughs) afterward. (laughs) I mean, I'm a little more forgiving of a film that doesn't straight up shoot Hitler in the face the way this one does. And I wonder to what extent the real story might not have been quite as interesting as this or slash like isn't a film in the way that this story is the original story just might not have been film worthy in the same way if if it's a total fucking bloodbath and it's Cromwell and and Peck getting tortured and killed or whatever like that's not a fun movie if you if what you want to do is make a fun war movie you make it like this you don't make it like the real thing and and i think we've seen a lot of war films on friendly fire that go in that direction versus the ones that adhere to the truth a little more
1: it would be filmmaking on hard mode to show the roger moore and gregory peck characters go down to go abduct a couple of people like pound nails under their fingernails and then kill them <laughs> and then go like could you imagine
2: <laughs> What? <laughs> well, except i feel like their careers would be over like no and more would it would be
1: done after that like that's how like actual war works. Yeah. Like people do have to do shit like that in wars and they like the people that they did that to were
2: Nazis. Did we have an appetite and I mean the royal we. Did did people in 1980 have an appetite for what real war was in a way that is often depicted in in modern films like that kind of blood and guts.
0: Well, the guys the guys that fought in World War II were in their 50s and 60s at this point right so they all knew but this movie came out the same year that apocalypse now came out so they're competing (sighs) with each other in theaters and Mm -hmm. one of them and the thing is apocalypse now reset the american idea of what a war movie is true yeah and this movie uh the sea wolves is like you know it's the dying embers
2: it doesn't feel like the same genre at all not at all and i think if 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 this movie had gregory peck
0: and roger moore pounding nails under people's fingernails it would have reset american cinema we need more bamboo (laughs) stewart (laughs) like
1: (laughs) reboot it you know like really ram it in there (laughs) (laughs) these guys this guy calls himself trumpet let's see what kind of brass he's made of
0: (laughs) I can only dream
2: yeah
1: I mean like that's a fascinating story because then there's like the these are also colonizers in India while Gandhi is working on trying to throw the British out
0: there he goes there he goes Adam
1: he got it all right yes that is such a fucking complicated movie though right yeah well that's right who are the good guys here? Yeah, your polyester colonizers. I think uh, I think Gupta <laughs> is is the only good guy in this, in that context. But Gupta has the bad guy mole. <laughs> yeah, that's true.
2: Oh, Lovecroft must have melons for adenoids. <laughs>
0: At the very top of the movie, it's dedicated to uh, the gallant people of Afghanistan. No, No, it's dedicated to the Earl of Mountbatten who had been assassinated by the IRA. So this movie came out in July of 80. It was filmed in 79 and Mountbatten died in, in 79, August of 79.
1: Are we sure he didn't die just because of like his disappointment in how vicious apocalypse now was? And he was like, Just really sad that an era of filmmaking had ended and a new one had started. No,
0: he died. He died of a broken heart because uh, because Prince Charles was such a wuss. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) No, he died when when the IRA blew up his his little fishing boat. But he was the viceroy of India. He was the supreme commander of of Asia in for the UK. He was the the governor general of India after independence and was like first sea lord and I think based on on what the title sequence implied he was some kind of honorary Calcutta light horse OG like all these guys back in nineteen oh one were playing slap and tickle with each other and one of them was the freaking Earl and they gave him they gave him a hat tip at the top. So, I mean, Mountbatten, <laughs> depend, if you're going to take an anti-colonial stance, that guy, you, can, you could go three different ways on him.
1: He's one notch down from Hitler. Well,
2: uh, it is rate and review time on Friendly Fire. It's the time when I get to construct a custom rating system for the film we've just discussed. And for the Seawolves... There is a perfect rating system. I don't often promise a perfect rating system, but I think this one's pretty great. Cromwell and Stewart have been circling each other like horny sharks throughout the film, <laughs> wondering which one's going to bite. They don't truly know each other's secret until the moment that Cromwell, she's digging around in his, in his coat closet, finds that party invitation. That's when it becomes clear, right? And then Stuart lies about not being invited. And then Cromwell learns the truth about Stuart in that moment. Ooh, what a moment. And then when he shows up at her place to pick her up for that party and then then gets almost killed by her henchman. That's a great scene. He gets the truth about her too in that moment. So the party invitation is a revelation, right? I mean, we've known all along. We've known for almost an hour and a half what the truth has been. But for some reason, I was very satisfied by the revelation and and how the two characters learn about each other in that moment. So it's the moment the story tips over from tension into violence, right? That moment of discovery of this party invitation. But do the assembled hosts of Friendly Fire accept the invitation to the Sea Wolves party? Or do we just flake out and go to bed early? On a scale of one to five party invitations, (laughs) (laughs) we will soon decide. I think this entire story makes it very fun to imagine being a good-looking older gentleman in a hot place with your friends just getting into spy adventures. If you can settle into that vibe, I think this movie's for you. The whole tone throughout is confident and fun. You don't really feel in danger very often, even even when Cromwell has her knife held to your belly. I really enjoyed like how film war this this one was. This feels like a unique quality in a friendly fire film that we don't often get. I think the Cromwell character is one I'm gonna think about a lot. She's a great third billing here. I really think she's She's up there with Peck and Moore. I know you're a you're a Niven Stan, John, but I think I think she deserves third billing in this movie. She is great and dangerous, and the Stuart character is not a dupe in that classic noir context. And I think it makes him more of a love fool in a cardigan's context. So I really loved all the fun locations. I loved all of the side characters that we get to meet along the way the friends we meet along the way i love the boat we didn't talk about this very much but the phoebe and its journey to its destination and the final act where we blow up not just the target german boat but all three that shootout on that boat feels so claustrophobic and dangerous and and just going cabin to cabin kicking open doors and And Shooting at things. I mean when they when they kick open the door to the mess and the Germans are playing their their ukuleles The German ukuleles and it's just a fucking bloodbath in that room I didn't know this movie had that in it It felt dangerous and bad at that moment and I truly Did not know how this mission was going to end. I I thought it might be a suicide mission the way it was promised I don't get invited to many parties And this is definitely one that I would go to if I were invited. I'm gonna give it a pretty strong four and a quarter invitations. I like this one quite a bit.
1: Strong rating. Well, this movie may have a phrase that perfectly describes it written into the film. When uh, David Niven describes uh, what's going on with the dudes in the Calcutta Light Horse, he says that they're thin on top and thick in the middle. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like this is not a this is not a heady film. This is not going to challenge your ideas in any way, but it is a fun adventure and it and. I'm like very nostalgic for that like adventure film that is set in a in a place and time that you might not have visited before. Like I I love just going and feeling like I'm in a in a place that is like new and different. I feel like one thing that this movie really accomplishes is making it feel hot all the time without making everybody feel like like look sweaty and gross. And maybe part of that is the uh, anachronistic fabrics that they're <laughs> Costumed in, but like you do, really like feel the the distinctness of Goa and versus Calcutta, and it's a part of the world that I'm like very interested in and curious about going and visiting. And I think that like if you can forgive that, it is just kind of like using that as a background and enjoy the the fun rock'em sock'em adventure that these guys go on and enjoy the fact that they're kind of dunking on themselves making a movie about guys that suck at this actually uh, like it's pretty it's a pretty fun movie and uh, yeah I think I'm going to give it four invitations it can come with three of its friends hey <laughs> oh wow wow how about that well John, how do you make a Hungarian omelet? (laughs) (laughs) Uh,
0: We've watched a lot of movies now on this program. By the time this show comes out, how many movies will we have watched on Friendly Fire? Uh, Ben, can you Uh, call that number to mind? This is in the 140s. 140 movies we've watched. And somewhere along the line, fairly recently, I have become extremely unforgiving. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know what has happened to me, but... You know, it's not that I'm cynical. It's just that I feel like some of these movies deserve to be punished. Wow. (laughs) And the thing about this movie is that it is a movie that is 100% trying to be charming. Mm. It's got these these great guys. David Niven is nothing if not charming. Roger Moore is made out of marzipan and... (laughs) Dubious charm. (laughs) Barbara Kellerman is, uh, she's great. When she spoke German, I was like, oh yes. (laughs) But Barbara Kellerman gives a one and a half note performance here. Anyway, this is one of those movies from that particular era where you get the old guys back together. You get some of these greatest generation actors, you throw them together and they get to waltz through a picture Without really trying, and everybody loves it because it's great to see the old boys back together again. But the problem is that this is a completely charmless movie. The dudes have charm, but the movie has no charm. The movie is coasting on the charm of other better movies because you like this movie because you've seen this movie. It's just that this particular one of these movies isn't as good as those other movies. Up until about five years before this, they were casting these dudes in war movies as though they actually were of the right age to be in World War II. So you would have David Niven in a war movie and he's 62 years old, but he's playing like a sergeant. But by 1980, you couldn't get away with that anymore. So they cooked up this thing where, you know, where you can get like 70 year old David Niven in a war film. And I and I like that. That's very charming but the movie is not charming. When the guy took out his glass eye, that was charming. The guy trying to keep the trying to keep the Phoebe running where he's, he's uh, getting squirted with oil. Like that's funny. That's sort of Carol Burnett show level 1970s funny. Anyway, I was coming into this episode ready to drop one and a half invitations on this movie. But listening to you guys talk and realizing that the uh, that the assault on the ship did have a lot of pretty good tension, the scenes of the Phoebe at sea, that was pretty fun to watch. But I don't see this movie having any more than two invitations. Wow brutal i really felt i really and you know because the permanent press takes (laughs) an invitation and a half right (laughs) off the top
1: (laughs) john you've savaged a movie that had a 12 million dollar budget and made two hundred twenty thousand dollars at the box office so (laughs)
2: wow do you feel better now
1: i feel i
0: feel that 1980s film audience vindicated me john you destroyed something
2: beautiful (laughs)
1: in that moment (laughs) how dare you (laughs) but who's your guy John (laughs) my guy is
0: definitely like fake eye guy
1: I love fake
0: eye guy I love him from the beginning and part of the reason I love him is that he seems 20 years younger than everybody else when he first appears on the screen with the Calcutta light horse I'm like either this guy is one of their sons because it's not like he's aging well he's got the he's got the puffy red nose of a a colonial like gin drinker so i don't know how he's a member of this group like what which guy was he i don't know well, I mean, all these guys have the same name. It's like Alan Cuthbertson, <laughs> Clifford Earl, one guy's name is Bernard Archard. He could also be Archie Bernard. So I don't I I'm I couldn't tell which one of these
2: actors he was. Great guy. Way to go positive with your guy versus your very negative score. Uh one of my favorite characters is is given the thankless task of just being down in the engine room. It's Wilton. I love Wilton. Wilton wants to go on the mission. Uh he is not permitted to do that. He's gotta stay down in the Phoebe's bowels. The the scene that really got me about Wilton was <laughs> was he has that moment with Ram. I think Ram is is his name, the Indian guy who who works with him in the engine room. And Wilton's like, I have the faintest idea of how how this thing works. Do you? And Ram gives the most emphatic no
1: that maybe we've ever seen
2: (laughs) on film. The the tag, like, I want to split the guys, basically, between Ram and Wilton. Like, these guys down there doing the work, keeping the Phoebe going. I love that. And I love, like, the pain on Wilton's face when the mission's about to go off and he is not permitted to join them. I think that that makes him my guy.
0: Yeah. That's an Adam moment.
2: Yeah. You guys wouldn't let me go on the mission. I know that.
1: My guy is uh, Senor Montero, the local to go up Portuguese dude that they uh, prevail upon to get the party started. He's also in there when in the, in the office when Mrs. Cromwell uh, finally gets stabbed in the belly and Roger Moore tells senior Montero, like act natural when we go back out into the party. And I loved his performance when they went back out into the room of like trying to put a face on that doesn't say I just saw a woman get stabbed in the back office. (laughs) (laughs) It (laughs) is it is so good. He's fucking great. And he's like externally saying, I did not see a woman get stabbed without actually saying it. (laughs) So he's my guy. He's a very, very suave dude. Also suave is our 120-sided dice. Oh, yeah.
0: Well, I don't have a coffee cup today. All I have is this Paddleball game and this chair. <laughs> um hang on. There's gotta be oh wait, there's a box. Hold on. Oh, there's some other shit in the box, but I'm gonna leave that shit in there. Alright, here we go.
2: <laughs> I don't know how you got a mug to sound like that. It's a box!
1: 58 58 is a 1960 film directed by Otto Preminger. Oh it's called Exodus. No The state of Israel is created in 1948 resulting in war with its Arab neighbors.
2: Exodus Movement of Ja people <laughs> with Paul Newman. Oh, yes. We should probably just shut down the email address (laughs) and never have another one after
1: this, right? We'll get a a letter from CAA saying they've declined to continue (laughs) representing us.
2: Guys, I have a reason why we shouldn't do this film, and it's not its subject matter. It's that it's three and a half hours long.
1: Woo! (laughs) This
0: this movie is based on the novel by Leon Uris, I think, and I read that novel in college. So uh, it's worth reading uh, um, before you watch the three and a half hour long Exodus starring Paul Newman.
1: Written by Dalton Trumbo on the yeah. screenplay. Wow. yes, intense. intensity in ten cities uh, but uh, I'm I'm looking forward to it nonetheless. Oh yeah, it's gonna be faux
0: rizzle. and we're gonna get <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna go down the we're gonna go down the rabbit hole on this I'm afraid. All right of my hope I hope you're an anti-Zionist just to balance out Ben's. Uh, Ben's going to get read the riot act.
2: I already took the side of Hezbollah during our, <laughs> our pork chop film about Independence Day. So
1: <laughs> get us out of the show, Ben. We got to let Rob clean up this mess. So. We're gonna leave it with robs from here uh for john roderick and adam pranica i've been ben harrison to the victor go the spoiler alerts
3: friendly fire is a maximum fun podcast hosted by adam pranica ben harrison and john roderick the show is produced and edited by me rob schulte our theme music is war by edwin Starr, courtesy of stone agate music and our podcast art is by nick ditmer if you're looking for more friendly fire why don't you scroll back into our past episodes? Last year at this time, your hosts reviewed The Bridge at Remagen. Starring George Seagal and Robert Vaughn, this film follows both the Americans and the Germans during one of the last stands of World War II. Feel like supporting our show? Head to MaximumFun.org/slash join. And for as little as five dollars a month, not only will you receive our pork chop bonus feed, you'll receive all of the bonus content from Maximum Fun. And now's the perfect time to join so that you'll hear this year's Halloween episode. And don't forget, you can now follow us on Twitter and Instagram under the handles Friendly Fire RSS. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week with another episode of Friendly Fire.